billions of people around the world will celebrate Jesus' resurrection today. But can we really take it seriously? Can we really take the resurrection of Jesus Christ seriously? Or is Christianity, as British physicist Stephen Hawking once put it, quote, a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, end quote. Resurrection? Is the concept even intellectually responsible in the 21st century? After all, we know that death equals decomposition equals dirt. Again, Stephen Hawking wrote, quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers, end quote. I think it's safe to say, perhaps an understatement, that Stephen Hawking was a bit skeptical regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is not alone. For there are many in today's world who think as Stephen Hawking did. They too are skeptical concerning the resurrection of Jesus. But this should not take us by surprise for those of us who are believers. For there have been countless numbers of people who have been skeptical concerning Jesus' resurrection ever since the event took place. But what may surprise you is that one of Jesus' first followers was a skeptic. And I'm not thinking of Thomas. He had doubts and reservations about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. His name was John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was a skeptic. He had doubts about the reality of Jesus and his resurrection. Keep in mind that John believed that Jesus was the Messiah But then he went to the cross, and John was there at the foot of the cross and saw Jesus die. All hope was lost now. Who is the Messiah, and what, what is God doing? Is he the Messiah? Can't be if he's dead. And that's what John knew. But we're going to see this morning in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, that he does become a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. And the question I ask is this, how did John, who was a skeptic in the resurrection of Jesus, become a believer in the resurrection of Jesus? How does a skeptic, one who doubts the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, become a believer in the resurrection of Jesus? That's the question that the text that we're going to look at this morning addresses. How does a skeptic a world full of skeptics today concerning the resurrection of Jesus. How does a skeptic become a believer in Jesus Christ? Because John was one of them. John knew that, and he writes down his story, and he shows us how he goes from being a skeptic to being a believer. John tells us first, in order for a skeptic to be a believer in the bodily resurrection of Jesus... One must be able to overcome any personal prejudice or bias one may have on the subject. Read verses 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So here we see Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb early in the morning while it's still dark. She notices that the stone has been removed from the tomb. And she immediately goes and tells two disciples, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, and says they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. Apparently she didn't believe in the resurrection either. She assumed that there were those who stole the body or removed the body from the tomb. And robbers of tombs was very common in that day. So much so that uh, the emperor Claudius made it a capital punishment for anybody who decided to go into a tomb and steal stuff that was in there. Even if you tried to break the seal to get into the tomb, you'd be put to death. And she apparently thinks that someone is messing around with Jesus' body. And she tells the disciples that Jesus' body is no longer there and we don't know where it is. Now you're Peter and you're John. Okay? And who is telling them that Jesus' body is not in the tomb? Mary Magdalene. What is it about Mary Magdalene? She's a woman. And what was the culture, what was the norm in that culture for that day if you were Jewish? A woman's testimony was not accepted. It was not even admissible in a court of law. So these men, if they are prejudiced and biased and are practicing the cultural customs of their day, would not even listen to what she's saying because they would have been prejudiced and biased against Mary Magdalene simply because she was a woman. If they don't deal with their own bias and prejudice, they will never look any further to see of whether or not what she's saying was true. Now, we live today in a world filled with skeptics concerning the subject of Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you know some people who are skeptical concerning the topic of Jesus' resurrection. I have family members who do not believe that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. They don't believe it. Like Stephen Hawking, it's a fairy story, right? Do you ever ask anyone why they believe that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead? Did they ever give you an answer why they don't believe that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead? What evidence have they ever given to any of you that would make them believe that Jesus Christ was not risen from the dead? Evidence, not arguments. There are many arguments that people will make that Jesus Christ was not risen from the dead, all of which are, have holes, serious flaws, all of them. But what is the evidence that suggests that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead? Think of any. A body would have been sufficient. No, no body Nobody found the body of Jesus. And no one ever saw people taking Jesus' body out of the tomb. And the reason why I bring this up is this. If no one is able to supply any evidence, give any evidence that Jesus Christ's body was not raised, then the only reason why they would hold such a position is because of a personal bias or prejudice on the subject. If you believe in anything, 
and hold a particular position about anything and you can't support it with evidence, then the only reason why you would continue to hold such a position is because you don't, you're biased. You're not willing to look at the issue objectively. And there are many people today who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and they cannot supply any evidence for their conclusion. They just think dead people don't rise. Well, that's not evidence. Evidence would have to link why dead people don't rise today with how does that prove that Jesus wasn't risen from the dead? What evidence evidence do you have to link the two together? There isn't any. And so the first issue for a skeptic in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they must be able to deal with their own personal biases and prejudices and look at the issue objectively, and many do not, because they don't have evidence to support their belief that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. They'll give you an argument, but they won't give you evidence to support the argument. Very, very weak. That's number one. That's what John is telling us here, okay? He had to overcome his own bias and prejudices first. Secondly, In order for a skeptic to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, one must be willing to seriously investigate the claims that they have heard on the subject. Read verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Question, why are they going to the tomb? They want to see whether or not what Mary said was accurate. They're going to investigate. Is it true? That's what they're doing. If you're a skeptic, you need to investigate, seriously investigate whether or not the claims and the testimony of those who say that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead has actually happened. What happens when a CSI-style forensic detective goes to Calvary to investigate what happened after Jesus' crucifixion? J. Warner Wallace is a forensic detective specializing in cold case investigations. As an atheist, Wallace became intrigued with the Gospels and their account of Jesus' resurrection because the most important question I could ask about Christianity just so happened to fall within my area of expertise. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? It would prove to be the ultimate cold case forensic investigation because eyewitnesses and material evidence that could be used to prove or disprove what happened have been gone for nearly 2,000 years. Wallace came away utterly convinced that it was true upon his investigation. As an atheist, Wallace had always assumed that the resurrection was a lie, believing that the 12 apostles concocted, executed, and maintained the most elaborate and influential conspiracy of all time. That's what he believed as an atheist. And he's not the only one. When Wallace looked at the evidence as an unbeliever, he found four minimal facts to be substantiated by both friends and foes of Christianity. Number one, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. Not disputable. Number two, Jesus' tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. True. Three, Jesus' disciples believed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. No one disputes that. And number four, Jesus' disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observations. 
Wallace tells how he then used the kind of abductive reasoning he would use at a crime scene, inferring the most reasonable explanation, and came up with several hypotheses. I'm not going to go through all of them, but what I will say is this. He looked at, in his, in his investigation, he, he looked up the, the, the argument that the disciples were delusional when they said they saw Jesus. They're delusional. They didn't actually see what they claimed to have seen. They're delusional. He said this fails to account for the empty tomb, and more importantly, he says, that he has never encountered large groups of people having identical hallucinations. If you are familiar with the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at first, in, in, in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a list of people who have actually seen Jesus after he was raised. Do you remember that? In that account, he mentions that over 500 people saw Jesus at one place at one time. They all saw Jesus at the same time at the same place. Okay? 500 people. People will say they were all hallucinating. Think about that. 500 people, have cl- are, 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 those who are doubters will say, all those 500 people, more than 500, all were hallucinating Jesus at the same place and at the same time. What are the odds of that happening, really? How many people do you know have actually hallucinated something in their mind that was being hallucinated in someone else's mind at the same place and at the same time. Highly improbable. It is possible to have several hundreds of people having different hallucination, thinking or seeing different things in their mind at the same place and at the same time. It is also possible to have the same hallucination of seeing Jesus at different places and at different times, but it is not likely to have 500 people envisioning in their mind Jesus at the same place and at the same time. It is highly, beyond highly uh, doubtful. The point is this. You're skeptical concerning the reality of Jesus' resurrection You need to do an investigation, and that's what John is doing here. Thirdly, in order for a skeptic to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, one must possess a strong desire to know the truth concerning the subject. One must possess a strong desire to know the truth concerning the subject. Read verse 4. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. What does that tell me about John, the other disciple who's running? He can't get to the tomb fast enough. Why? Because he wants to know the truth of whether or not Jesus was actually in the tomb. That's why. He wasn't just, this wasn't just a personal race between Peter and the other disciple. John, in his running, is expressing physically a desire to know the truth. And anybody who is a skeptical, uh, anyone who is skeptical concerning the resurrection of Jesus must have a strong desire to know the truth in order to believe. You say, Pastor John, are you implying that not everyone has a strong desire for truth? Of course. Not everyone has a desire to know the truth. They don't. 
I'll show it to you. There's a passage in John chapter 18. Jesus is, having, is being questioned by Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is questioning Jesus, and he says, so you are a king then, Jesus. You're a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? There's the question. And when he, Pilate, had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Here, Pilate is before Jesus, and he says to Jesus, what is truth? As soon as he asks the question, he turns around and walks away. He never stands in front of Jesus long enough and allow Jesus to give him an answer to his question. Why didn't he stay there? Because he wasn't concerned about the truth. If he really wanted to know the truth, he would have been in Jesus' presence long enough for Jesus to give him an answer in his own time and in his own way. But Pilate did not want to do that. If there are skeptics today who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it could be because they don't have a deep, strong desire to want to know the truth. And that is absolutely necessity, a necessity for someone who is skeptical about the resurrection to have. Okay. Now, if a skeptic is able to overcome his or her personal prejudices and biases on this subject, if a skeptic is willing to seriously investigate the claims that they have heard on this subject, and if a skeptic possesses a strong desire to know the truth on this subject, then the skeptic will find sufficient evidence to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, verses 5 through 8. And he, referring to John, the disciple, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief or the napkin that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came into the tomb first went in, also and he saw and he believed. Now, what happened? John, the apostle whom Jesus, lo uh, whom Jesus loved, goes to the tomb first. And he peeks in, and what does he see? The linen cloths lying there. Right? What is that? That's called evidence. That's what the linen cloths were. They were evidence. And that wasn't enough evidence to convict him that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He saw evidence, but he's still not a believer yet, and he apparently was too timid to go into the tomb. But Peter, if you know Peter, he had a character that was unlike John. Peter was very impulsive, right? He would insert his foot into his mouth. He was not afraid to walk on water, right? He wasn't afraid to go into this scary, dark tomb where Jesus' body is supposed to lie. And what does Peter see? He sees the same thing as John. He sees those linen cloths lying there. But Peter doesn't stop. He goes into the tomb, and what else does he see? He sees the napkin. This is the face cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus' face this way to make sure that his jaw remains shut. And when Peter notices this napkin, this face cloth, he sees it, that it's by its own place, rolled up and folded. 
neatly. Now, John goes in after Peter sees the very same thing, the napkin folded neatly in his, in his place, and he believes. You say, well, why would he do that? You know why he did that? Because the evidence led him to that conclusion. That's why. He understood that robbers would never ever go into the tomb and take the time to unwrap the body with these linen cloths that were very expensive, which would probably be the reason why robbers would go into the tomb in the first place. They wanted the linen cloths because they were expensive. Not only would they want the linen cloths, but they would want the, the, the spike nard and the, the ointments that would have been used to slow the process of decay in Jesus' body. That was very expensive, and that's what robbers would go after. But here we see the very thing that you would have expected them to take is lying on the ground. And then he sees the napkin folded up nice and neat. What robber is going to take the time to do that? They wouldn't, especially if you're going to be facing capital punishment if you get caught. And so he understands this. So what does John do? He comes to the logical conclusion that this was not, no one was, there was no robbers who did this. It would be illogical to assume in that time that a robber would do something like this. The only logical conclusion that John could come up with is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and therefore he believed before he ever saw Jesus' resurrected body. He came to that conclusion based on evidence, which is what skeptics are very, put a supreme emphasis on. Evidence. Evidence will lead you to that. It did for John, and that's what John is saying. Now, it's important to note, because there are people who will do this, well, maybe the disciples made up this whole story in order to make it fit Scripture, right? Scripture say that the Messiah is going to rise from the dead, and therefore what the, what the, what the disciples did is they, they understood that the Scripture said that the Messiah was going to rise from the dead. And so then they concocted a story that would fit Scripture and say, ah, see, there's one problem with that. Read verses 9 and 10. For as yet they, the disciples, Peter and John, did not know or understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Anyone who says that the disciples were making up a story in order to make it fit their understanding of Scripture... They did not have that understanding of Scripture at that time. The revelation of Scripture concerning Jesus' resurrection only came later, and it would reinforce in John's mind the evidence he has already seen in the tomb. So it tells anyone who's a skeptic, you don't need biblical revelation. It, the evidence itself, if you do a serious investigation, will lead you to the truth. How many of you have ever heard of Lee Strobel? Anybody ever hear of Lee Strobel? right? An atheist. Found out his wife became a believer. Couldn't believe that his wife would believe in such nonsense. And so what did he do? He had overcame any bias that he, his, that he may have had his wife, may have had against his wife because she believed in such nonsense. Did a, he seriously investigated the claims. He had a strong desire for truth. And what happened? After a year and nine months later, he became a believer, became a pastor. He didn't believe the biblical revelation. He just looked at secular resources and came to the logical conclusion that the only explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So it's there for skeptics. This is how John came to be a believer. 
And this is the story for those who may be skeptical. Now, you may have loved ones, friends, family members who are skeptical about the resurrection. Get yourself acquainted with John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, because this will help them. This will help them. This is why John, led by the Holy Spirit, put this story in the book. Now, there's two more points I would like to make by way of application, and that's this. John's story of how he came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus should remind us of the power a transformed life can have on those who are skeptical. This story reminds us of the power of a transformed life can have on those who are skeptical. Mary Magdalene was someone whose life has been seriously transformed. And I have no doubt that it was her transformed life that impacted the other disciple and Peter and starting them in the process to go find whether or not Jesus' tomb was empty. She was a woman who had seven evil spirits in her and Jesus cast them out. She was a changed woman. And when people see Jesus who is alive living within you and your life is transformed, it could be the power of your transformed life that can play a large and significant factor in someone who is skeptical about Jesus' resurrection and helping them to believe, at least starting them on the journey. The power of a transformed life. Is Jesus transforming your life this morning? Because those out there who need hope this morning are looking for it. And God's bringing change in you and in me can be something that ignites their search for faith. And secondly, John's story of how he came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus should encourage skeptics not to embark on their search for truth alone. Remember, John was timid to go into that tomb. If Peter was, was not with him, would, would John have ever, ever mustered, off, mustered up enough courage to go into that tomb by himself to see the extra evidence that was lying in there that would cause him to believe? If people are looking for truth and you're skeptical, you must not embark on this journey alone. What kept John going was when he was with someone else who had the same desire to know truth as he did. And I think when we know people who are struggling or questioning lovingly come alongside them and prayerfully ask God's Spirit to guide you and lead you as you lovingly lead them to the truth, Jesus, because he's alive. There was once a Muslim college student who came to believe in Jesus Christ. One of his friends was shocked and asked him, why did you become a follower of Jesus? Here was his response. It's simple, really. Imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a fork in the road and there are two people there to follow as your guide along the way. One of them's dead and the other's alive. Which one are you going to follow? One of the great appeals of Christianity is that Jesus, its founder, is not dead, but he's alive. And so even after the hype from Easter Sunday fades into the grind of Monday... Jesus is still alive, and because he lives, people should seek him, worship him, and obey him. Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen, is he not? With that truth in our minds, we humbly come before the Lord 
in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, there may, this message may recall a time when we may have been skeptical earlier on in our walk with you and how you lovingly and graciously led us to a place where we um, had our hearts changed and transformed by your truth. Lord, we ask that the people uh, that are in our lives who may be skeptical concerning the resurrection, that you would do a mighty work in their heart and in their mind. We ask, Lord, that you would help them to be aware of their own prejudices and biases that may exist in their own hearts and minds that they may be blind to, may not even be aware of. Help them to know their own prejudices and biases, Lord, concerning this issue. We also pray, Lord, that those who are skeptical in our family, our friends, our co-workers, that you would put in them a desire to seriously investigate the truth. Help them to want to know the truth. And Lord, help them to give them, give them a desire to want to know your truth. And when that happens, Lord, you're going to do a mighty work in their heart. And they will come to know that the Jesus that we worship, that we love, that we adore and desire to be obedient to, is alive and has conquered the grave. Lord, we thank you for this great act of love. It is because of your grace that this has happened. And we just praise you and thank you for the fact that the resurrection happened is amazing. But it's not as amazing as the grace which was the cause of the resurrection. Your love for us, it is truly amazing. And for this we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' holy name, amen. It's interesting that John the evangelist referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So why did he do that? Why is he constantly reminding himself that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved? I think it was very wise of him to do that. Because sometimes when we live in this world, we may question that. Sometimes we will question that based on what happens to us in our lives. And the fact that he continues to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved is a constant reminder to himself that I am loved by Jesus Christ. You are a disciple that Jesus loves. And we know that because Jesus came into this world to die on a cross for you and for me when we did not deserve it ever but he came anyway. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our sin, he says, I love you. Here's my son. He's going to go to the cross for you. And he's going to die for you. But he's not going to remain there. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. Remember that. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. And he loved John. And on the night that he was betrayed, he was in that upper room with his disciples. And he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
When supper had ended, he also took the cup. And he blessed it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant by which your sins will be forgiven. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. The table is set and all is prepared. I am going to walk around and pass out the elements to you. I would simply ask that you just hold on to the elements so that we can partake of them together. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ that has been broken for you and for me, let us partake together. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for both you and for me. Let us partake together. Would you please pray with me? A gracious Father, we thank you for this celebration, this time where we have communion together as one body with you. For we are in you, and because you live, we also will live, and death will not conquer us either. For this we give you great praise, for this we rejoice because of the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. May all glory and power and honor and majesty and might be yours, Almighty Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen. He lives. Christ has risen from the dead, right? He is, in, he is, risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Disciples whom Jesus loves. You are disciples whom Jesus loves. Keep that in mind because the death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that. Go enjoy, enjoy your time with family and friends today, being mindful that you are loved disciple, a love disciple. Go in peace. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in peace, knowing that Christ has risen from the grave. Amen.